Hey everyone, welcome to Bon Am with Scoops. I, I'll, scoops with a cold and the mm-hmm. wolf and total biscuit. <laughs> Generally, not no, no cold over here. Just just plain old wolf. A wolf a wolf with a cold would be a sad thing indeed. It seems uh, like it would just. <laughs> <laughs> not good. Not fun. exactly. Um, we are joined today by John Total Biscuit Bane, who. Uh, is someone that has a nickname, has a brand with them. So sometimes we have to come up with names when uh, we host these shows. But, but John, you've got your own. I'm quite disappointed, honestly. Uh, if I'd come in here without a brand, I could have got a new one live on air. That would have been phenomenal. <laughs> I could have got away from this terrible brand to begin with, but never mind. See, I was never the wolf before this show. That was just something that yeah. Jeff yelled out when he was coming up with dumb names, and then it stuck. So what would you like your totally tossed off, thrown away other nickname to be? Hmm. I... I've got this kind of mobster idea in my head. Vinny the Hat sounds like a good idea. We could go with that. Mm. that how did you uh, How did you end up with Total Biscuit? Was that just sort of like happenstance, something that kind of stuck, and then it was too late to go back? It was. It was a kind of that. Uh, obviously, it's still my fault that I picked it in the first place. It was a one-off reference in one of my favorite Terry Pratchett novels. And that was it. There was no more meaning behind it whatsoever, other than it sounded good at the time. And I regret it strongly, <laughs> but never mind. I mean, that's how that stuff goes. We we were talking about that last week. I mean, the root of the the nickname I had online for the longest time came out of Extremer with a capital X, oh. um, which uh, is very unfortunate. And oh, at God. least <laughs> at least later in life, things have you know moved toward using your real name. So I was kind of able to slowly ditch that. I remember there was a point pretty early on in Twitter where I had. Uh, not extremer, but a variant on that that I had adopted, and then finally switched my name over to my real name, and uh, it seemed like the better of the uh, the <laughs> the lesser of the two evils. Yeah, I think in the YouTube world, it's a bit difficult to move onto your real name unless you're very much a guy that focuses on real life content. If you're doing gaming, well, you're probably stuck with whatever dumb username you picked in 2006 for your YouTube account. <laughs> and there's like purely like just. Is any of like the search algorithm play into that, or is that just you know kind yeah. of once you've got a name, people are searching for that? It, it really is SEO. Uh, if you toss your brand like that, then you're giving up so much. Uh, we actually had to do a redirect to our channel because my channel is not called Total Biscuit. It was called Total Halibut initially, which was a wow story. Don't even get me started. Those were the dark <laughs> times. World of Warcraft responsible for everything that ever went wrong in my life. But regardless, it. Once you change your name, it's difficult to get people to adopt that. And once your search ranking is up there, it's probably going to stay there. So you really don't want to drop your brand. It's kind of suicidal. People know what to look for at that point. I guess that's the nice part about at least how, you know, Twitter works in that you, when you change your name, you know, you keep all the followers. It's not like you're starting a new account. I mean, obviously people are searching for something. They're going to lose that, but at least you sort of retain that core base because you know starting from scratch of like you know redirecting millions of people, you know you're gonna you're you're just you're gonna lose a lot of the casual people along the way no matter what. And a lot of them are casual as well. It's it nicely ties into the idea of hey, if YouTube goes to hell, what are we gonna do? And there's a few sites we could go to, but how many people can we drag along with us for the ride? That's the real point. How many people will really follow, and how many just view whatever pops up in their YouTube subscription box and are not going to go out of their way to check a different site every day. So here's a question I have for you then as someone who is, you know, obviously pretty locked in with, with YouTube stuff these days. How close are we to that apocalyptic point with YouTube right now? Like, how close are we to that whole thing just getting dragged down to hell? It comes down to, over the next few months, how this whole monetization review thing plays out right now. Because at this point, we've got two kinds of partners. We used to have, well, we actually used to have two kinds of partners. Technically, we now still have two kinds of partners. That's why things have got a little strange. Beforehand, we had the unnetworked partner, which is someone that partners directly with YouTube, right? And they were subject to monetization review pretty much all the time. That was very common for them. And then you had your networked partner who wasn't. Now, they weren't because the MCNs, multi-channel networks, were supposed to be responsible for checking what was going on and just kind of keeping everything above board and policing their own guys. And, and multi-channel networks, to be clear, are things like Machinima, right? Yes, yeah. 
Okay. Absolutely. Machinima Polaris, full screen. There's, you know, there's quite a few of them that have popped up, and many of them might not even be names that are familiar to most people. But now we have this difference between affiliate and managed channels. And affiliates are now basically what, un what these unnetworked partners used to have to deal with. And that's why we have some guys coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, I've been dealing with this forever. This is no difference to me. But the network channels haven't. They've had this blanket monetization permission, and now only managed channels do because <clears throat> these problems, these copyright strikes that keep going on, they can affect the whole network if it happens to a managed partner. So the partner assumes direct legal responsibility for all of that. Now, what will happen over the next couple of months is this monetization review issue that means that any video can randomly get basically called to the side by the TSA and subject to a full-body cavity search is <laughs> it could take up to several days to happen. And YouTube is promising it'll be faster, it'll be faster, it'll keep going faster. You'll actually earn trust within the system. It'll happen less and less. However, <clears throat> this is YouTube we're talking about. And it probably won't. So what could happen to a lot of these partners, especially those that are really reliant on this kind of same-day content? They've got to be up to speed with everything. They've got to put their videos out on day one. And, you know, you've experienced it. You know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to embargoes, right? Review right, embargoes. Sure. So these guys who are not managed partners cannot potentially can't meet those review review try again review embargoes because they upload their video and suddenly they can't monetize it for two plus days so they can put their review out but they won't make any money from it right right so that that's, that's the that's real problem exactly yeah. I, I view that as utterly unacceptable for affiliates I'm managed so I'm not subject to it but that's you know it's kind of an edge I suppose for me because I do a lot of embargoed content but it's also BS I don't want to have my competition suffering that. I'd rather know that, hey, you know, I'm doing well on my own merits, not because I just got handed some little golden parachute and everyone else just got screwed by that. So that, right. I think, is, if you're asking about the apocalypse, that's where it's going to come from because that's the it, by far the biggest factor. It seems like a lot of what YouTube is doing is trying to, you know, in some ways you can be sympathetic to them because you look at what happened with Viacom. Right? Yes, absolutely. They were sued for tens of millions of dollars over user-generated content, which is what YouTube makes its money off of, yep. or makes you know a large part of it. You know They've tried to move into other venues, but at the end of the day, their bread and butter is people making content and monetizing that. Yep. And what they seem to have to do because of their business model is prepare themselves for the couple of assholes that could potentially take the company apart with huge copyright claims. And so they have to put these policies in place to protect against a couple of people or a couple of corporations or a couple of bad instances and it ends up hurting everyone else in the process because their business model is predicated on having content generated by the users that may or may not have copyright that could potentially infringe. Yeah, and technically the DMCA safe harbor laws are supposed to cover this. The thing is that ever since Google actually bought YouTube, they put in this gigantic system, content ID matching, which was very much above and beyond, along with the ability to take down any video essentially at will. Now, these are not DMCA takedown notices. That's a very much a legal thing. A takedown notice on YouTube, a copyright strike, is not that at all. There are far more requirements on the DMCA takedown notice. They don't have to be instantly complied with in the way that these YouTube takedown notices do. So, really, Google went above and beyond, and now they're doing that yet again and requiring all of this monetization review. And a lot of it seems to have hit game content. It doesn't seem to be exclusively that, but games are the ones that got hit the hardest because we are used to having some strikes, but not on this scale. We're not used to seeing a channel like Angry Joe getting 68 copyright claims on his most popular videos, which automatically removes the monetization on all of them. So that's his big, you know, his most evergreen content, his strongest part of his back catalog is suddenly unmonetized because of these changes. Is that because at this point, you know, when it comes to people making original content off of YouTube using, you know, technically copyrighted material like, you know, games or whatever else, like, is it just the, that's where the volume is, is in the video game channels at this point? Right now it is. It was a few months ago, yeah. I believe, that Google released a large white paper on this and actually was really pushing the benefits of gaming channels and saying, look at how popular this makes you. Look at the traction that's here. This is where the eyeballs are right now. The most subscribed channel on the internet is a gaming channel, loosely. 
Oh, that's PewDiePie. <laughs> but, no. Yeah, it's just crazy that it's become that because yeah. I remember when it seemed like you know people doing these let's plays and you know long plays on YouTube was kind of like this weird token fringe thing. You know, it's like even we were kind of on the fringe of what everyone else was doing, and now it seems like that is primarily what people use YouTube for when it comes to video gaming now. It does seem to be that way, doesn't it? You know, you can certainly present professionally created content on YouTube, and in some instances it does quite well, but there is a massive volume of this very sort of bare-bones kind of content. This is game, microphone, and sometimes right. camera, and that's about as far as it goes for a lot of people. And, that's, and, yeah. and I wonder if the next step is... You know, it's just sort of assumed that this is all sort of covered legally. Like there are way, there are arguments that have been constructed that it makes sense, and companies have given consent. Yeah. But you know, games are unique, and we haven't necessarily had a court ruling that sets a precedent over what is a transformative work. You know, that's sort of like the key thing that we, we're talking about when we're we're discussing a let's play, like you know, or, or any sort of like playing a game, talking it over, like however you want to classify that. You know, is just playing the game thus transformative? Thus, it is protected. Uh, and then maybe this would uh, allow YouTube, at least in terms of video games, to back off on this to some extent. Um, maybe if there was some sort of ruling in place uh, that provided some more legal clarity. But at the same time, you know, once you go down that road, you know, you you open video games up, and a lot of people like yourself that that do this for a living, and even us, you know, we're we're moving in that direction too. Certainly. Um, you know, this is all games uh, writing, like whether it's on YouTube or on independent. Uh, websites like are doing a lot of the same things and are affected uh, in, in in different ways going forward. Um, it's just kind of happening on YouTube first. I just wonder if maybe a legal precedent that sort of established what exactly makes it a transformative work and thus protected might actually help the, the whole thing in the long run. I think so, and I really think we need to try and explore the boundaries of how fair use actually applies to video game footage. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, and every time anything like this blows up, we always see people come into the argument and they bring their movie analogies and they bring their television show analogies. And every time, those analogies are just so incredibly flawed because we're not talking about a static, non-interactive medium. We're talking about a medium where you cannot help but be transformative in some way simply by virtue of playing it. Even playing a game that really has the same kind of outcome, like, say, Gone Home, for instance. Uh, Gone Home mm. is going to go pretty much the same way for everybody. But the pace is different, or the conclusions that you draw from that game are different, or even just the direction that you walked is different. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but compared to what you can do with a television show, I, I can't turn the character around and send them back out the door before you know, they get shot by the assassin who's waiting in the living room. That That's not something that you can do with a non-interactive medium. So... The rules simply do not apply in their current form. Copyright law is obviously out of date, especially when it comes to interactive mediums. We need to figure out what's reasonable. We need to figure out where we need to go with it. And until that happens, we're currently quite reliant on publishers playing ball with us. And thankfully, over the last few days, we've actually seen an awful lot of publishers come out in direct support of video on YouTube and, of course, on other sites as well. Yeah, because, I mean, that stuff helps them yeah. technically in the long run. You know, a lot of companies could theoretically look at it and say, well, you're airing our content. People won't buy the game if they see this stuff and, you know, they they, they, they won't you know give us the money that we're, we're so rightfully deserved. But at the same time, that doesn't seem like it's ever proven true. No. It seems like these things have actually helped bolster sales of a lot of those games in a lot of those cases. Yeah, and an another analogy that people are making is, well, it's the same as pirating a movie. If you're just posting all the cutscenes on YouTube, then people are just going to go watch that instead of playing the game. But no, that's not what games are about. You're, watching a game is a different experience from playing one, and if someone is not compelled to play your game after seeing parts of it on YouTube, then maybe your game just isn't that good in the first place. Right. You know, if, if I watch an hour-long quick look, I'm generally inspired to either play the game because it looks really, really good and you guys are having fun with it, right. or not play the game because the game's evidently terrible, and that that was going to come out regardless. You, know, you can try and block off all of those kind of long-form pieces of video content, but a traditional review is still going to say this game is terrible. So we, we, we need to know about the, these games regardless. You know, we'd prefer to know about them in this more honest medium. And you're right, there is no proven link between lost sales and uploading on YouTube. In fact, for most of the st statistics that I have, it indicates the exact opposite. And I imagine yours reflect right. that. Yeah, and, it, so, and it's, it, it's... Oh, go ahead, Alex. Oh, I was just going to say, so the, the follow-up to that is, you know, 
you said earlier that like all these different publishers have come out and very much in favor of saying you know we're we're on board with this you know we think these things help us a lot we want to support these these different YouTube personalities, but then you have these instances where you're get you know people are getting like sixty three different you know copyright claims and like all this stuff's getting pulled down. Where it, is there an understanding of where this stuff is actually coming from right now? Like, are the DMC claims coming from inside the house? Like, what, what, what? Who is actually pushing this stuff forward right There's now? There's a lot of false flagging going on at the moment, and it really comes down to a lot of these companies not understanding how content ID works. And I don't blame them because before this all went down, I had a lot of misconceptions about content ID. It seems like the companies would have to go out of their way to use it. It turns out that a lot of these companies simply registered some content with content ID to make sure that another company couldn't flat out steal it and claim it was theirs, right? That's the only reason they registered it. A couple of right. the larger publishers, including Blizzard, expressed dismay on Twitter to people saying, we did not do this. This had nothing to do with us. It seems like YouTube automatically activated every content ID on the planet all at once. It was a Skynet situation. Now, all the nuclear missiles get launched in the air. No one had any idea what happened. And this also happened with a lot of music. And this was the biggest deal because Music More Often Than Not is actually licensed to multiple companies for multiple different uses, meaning that some game music ended up being triggered when the publisher in question didn't trigger the claim. Uh, Ubisoft right now is dealing with a company, I believe, called Idol, who licensed a lot of music for video games and all sorts of other things like trailers. And Ubisoft is saying, we did not start these claims and we're going to get this sorted out for our games that use stuff that is licensed within the idle licensing network. And, right. and then, of course, you have people that are just claiming falsely. There was, let's see, there was an instance of a channel called NerdCubed doing a video about the Olympic Games video game, which was just horrible, uh, which I think everybody knows. However, there's a short cutscene before you go into the cycling event. This cutscene was used on a Spanish news network and they copyright content id claimed that footage based on the fact that they had used the same footage in their news broadcast and just blanket content id'd everything <laughs> on their channel now, which is obvious nonsense and there's a huge amount of irony because these news networks use those clips under fair use which is exactly what was happening with nerdcubed he did it under critique and then this one fair use claim nailed the other one to the wall and neither of them oh, actually had an exclusive right to that footage. And, and I think one, one of the things that, you know, when I look at all of this stuff is, you know, right now, game companies uh, treat uh, essentially the traditional video game press differently than they treat, you know, quote unquote, YouTubers, yeah. uh, which really, in, in many ways, aren't doing anything different uh, than what we do. They're just doing it in a different format. And they're doing it in a format that is, you know, corporately hosted on a video service that can enact slightly different rules. Uh, yes. But, you know, we've certainly had situations where, uh, you know, Activision or other companies, they want the views for their new trailers to go to a YouTube channel and the one that they are running and then the one that they are monetizing. And if we were to put up uh, a trailer, you know, we've had takedown requests come in the past uh, because we were hosting it on our site. But I think that what I find interesting about all of this is that it's basically just happening to yourself and others first. And there's no reason to not think that all of this wouldn't trickle down uh, to people that are running their own independent websites and own independent video services at some point. It's just easier because right now, Google is building the services to make it actually work on YouTube. That's exactly true. And it is far, far easier to take down content on YouTube than it is anywhere else. You have to send an actual DMCA notice to a website. They have time to respond and to comply and things like that. On YouTube, there is no response. The video goes down immediately. Then you must dispute that. And that and can take you. over you know, you're weeks. not, you're, you know, you're not a company. You're, you don't, you know, yeah. you don't have an army of lawyers. You know, there's, there's, you know, it's much easier to target uh, a single person or a couple of people that, you know, have never had to deal with something like that before. You know, when a, when a takedown notice shows up, I mean, that shit sounds really scary. It up does, front, yeah. Even if, even if, you know, ultimately what they're threatening with you is something rather innocuous. Uh, but it does seem really scary if you've never dealt with. Uh, sort of legal paperwork before. Yeah, and those claims include words like perjury, which sounds incredibly terrifying because <laughs> people go to jail for that. And yet I don't believe a single person has ever, in fact, been convicted of perjury under the notice of false flag takedowns. So that is a bit of a red herring there as well. That And it warns you time and again, look, if you dispute this and you lose, that's a copyright strike that can affect your entire account for upwards of six months and disable your ability to monetize. Three of those, you're out of the game completely. So, there, yeah, it's very scary. Any, is, 
is there any way to because I know yeah I've, I've heard about the three strike uh, sort of system like once that happens is there an appeal process or is that just sort of one two three and you're out you have to talk to YouTube and good luck because that is like talking <laughs> to a brick wall unless you have network support then if your channel goes down it's down for good the issue last year with Sega and Shining Force the Japanese publishers in particular by the way don't seem to dig YouTube at all Sega no. have been one of the they worst don't like the internet yeah, yeah, that's very, very true. And what happened was about 18 YouTube channels were hit with mass copyright strikes over supposed Shining Force footage. Yes, we're talking about Shining Force 3 here, a Sega Saturn game, you know, <laughs> highly relevant to the current game's market. But some of this footage wasn't even footage. It just mentioned the word Shining Force in a vlog. There was no footage at all. And some of these channels were taken down and they never came back. There's a, there's a list on a popular Shining Force website of these channels. About three quarters of them never came back. So if there was an appeals process, it evidently doesn't work very well. God. Well, so, let's say... Yeah. Oh, sorry, I, I just, so let's, let's say it actually comes down to, you know, the sort of doomsday scenario that you're talking about. You know, it, it, obviously there are ways that can be avoided still, but let's say it actually comes to that and, you know, the people who are using YouTube to monetize this type of content simply cannot do that effectively anymore. Is there a second option? Because you look at something like YouTube, it's monolithic, it's huge, yeah. it's and it's ubiquitous in, in the culture. There really isn't another video-type service like that that I'm aware of that has anywhere near that level of cachet. Is, there, is this something that you think can be built up again elsewhere, or does this really kind of fuck the whole thing? I think the eyeballs are proven at this point, which means that if it's not happening on YouTube, it will happen elsewhere, but obviously it's going to take a lot of building up yet again. If I took all my subscribers to, say, Blip TV, which is an option, that's actually owned by one of the networks, Maker bought Blip TV, so I imagine that's designed as a bolt hole if this whole thing goes south. But how many of my subs can I really drag over there? There's going to be a massive period of rebuilding. And the monolithic point is a great one because YouTube is the second biggest search engine on the planet. Meaning that if right. you're not on YouTube, you might as well not really exist because Google really wants you to be there. And they have encouraged people to be there, which is strange that they've then come and kind of stabbed them in the back in that respect. I think the biggest option for a lot of people that maybe is comparable would be Twitch. Now, it's strange right. to suggest it because it's a completely different service. It's live streaming. But a lot of this content that we're doing right now could be done live in theory. Uh, it would take a lot of effort. There would be a lot more mistakes. The production quality wouldn't be quite there, but it could be done. And there is already a large audience there, and a lot of us have been using it for live streaming anyway. So moving our audience to Twitch and doing a lot of our stuff live, or maybe even going as far as, this is something that I kind of tossed out yesterday, the idea of taking your content, pre-making it, and then airing it at a specific time, and then relying on Twitch VODs, which are apparently improving. They're terrible right now, but the thing about using Twitch is that you can feasibly run more ads and people will accept it because they're used to that kind of thing. On YouTube, if you even mid-roll an hour-long piece of content, people actually get antsy about that, which is very strange right. because you compare that to network television, and a, you know, an, a minute of ads for an hour of content seems pretty fair in the grand scheme of things, but people don't really take to it. But you run an ad after every, say, StarCraft ladder game, people are totally fine with that. Some of them ask you to run more because they want, you, they want to support you. They want to feel like they're contributing. So maybe that's a possibility, but... Other VOD services, they, they would have to go out of their way to market themselves to gamers. And then, of course, they open themselves up at potentially the same kind of risks. I'm just imagining the entire gaming content stream of YouTube filing over to Twitch. And I am just imagining that site just caving <laughs> under the weight of that. Because oh, it yeah. can barely handle the amount of traffic it has now. That's very true. Yeah. If Twitch is gearing up to this kind of thing, then I hope they're gearing up quickly and effectively. Because otherwise, they're going to be in serious trouble. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how that stuff plays out. Um, it's it's obviously, you know, if nothing else, it's uh, when these sort of near apocalyptic scenarios happen, at least more people are informed, which means more people can talk about it, which means more people can bitch about totally. it. Totally. And, and hopefully that will uh, create a pushback for YouTube, or at least to consider how it should handle its policies going forward. Um, but uh, Alex, did you, uh, did you play anything over the weekend? Oh, content shift. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, I finally got into uh, Call of Juarez. Good for you. Good for you. That game kicks yeah. ass. Damn good game. It does. I have had a huge aversion to anything with the words Call of Juarez on it for good reason. Yeah. Because that franchise has mostly been garbage the whole way through. Uh, but 
after seeing everyone pick up on it again this past weekend, I guess, for Game of the Year deliberation stuff, uh, I finally picked it up, and I got about, I think, halfway through it. Uh, yeah, that game yeah. is really good. I am super yeah. surprised by how good that game is. I love the 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 quick draw duel stuff i i love like even just running around shooting stuff in that game is weirdly satisfying for how bad a lot of those games have been in the past i am surprised by that one yeah the the cartel uh, was just terrible i oh yeah I, it was it was a nice idea but that there were it almost reminds me actually of walking dead survival instinct in the sense of oh these guys have some interesting ideas and either don't have the time money or talent to implement any of them properly but Gunslinger, it went with the nice, simple idea of this is a linear arcade FPS. It's $15. Enjoy. And it and works so well. It all works in concert really nicely. Like, a couple of those, the, the fights I found a little frustrating. But honestly, like, I'm genuinely surprised by how balanced and generally pretty fun that game is. Um, other than that, I just played a bunch more Zelda as I, I kind of worked my way through that one. Um, I played a little bit more of Dead Rising 3, uh, which... I don't know. I, I, I like that game. I think mechanically it's very fun. I still think I, I'm not getting into the story or the characters at all whatsoever. After hearing about some of the things that happened later in that game, I still want to work my way through it. Um, but I think at this point it's actually going to be for just the, the rampant zombie murdering uh, that more than anything else, which is a nice change of pace because that was something I found more frustrating in the other two Dead Rising games yeah. than this one. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with how this one is playing out yeah. mechanically. Like, going back to, to Call of Wars for a second, the, the problem with that game yeah. in particular is not even the game itself. It's that Techland at this point has become a developer that you just can't count on every single time no. where you maybe you're going to get... The Good Tech Land, which puts out Dead Island, which right. is a really interesting game with a fascinating combat system. Uh, but then Dead Island Riptide comes out, and oh god, they clearly assigned the C team to this one, and this game is terrible, and the real talent is working on Dying Light. Um, whereas, you know, Call of Juarez, you know, Bound in Blood, I think is a pretty kick-ass game because it's super weird. Uh, but then the cartel is complete garbage, so I don't blame anyone for not wanting to check out Gunslinger. Uh, but that's, it's too bad, because Gunslinger, super stylish, like, great soundtrack, like, yeah. just really fun to play. And, and the, the actual, uh, sort of like, the one-on-one -on -one duels work surprisingly well. Yeah. And moving yeah, it's a small but fun thing. Yeah, moving away from the mechanics for a second, the narrative conceit of that game I thought was absolutely fantastic. It was, uh, I think, Idle Thumbs podcast, the latest episode we're talking about that, the idea of Western Tall Tales. And yeah. that's exactly what it is, because you hear the narrative, and then it completely conflicts with what you did on screen, and you're entirely okay with that, because it sounds like someone has either just become some kind of Western legend where he really isn't, or he's deliberately talking up his own achievements. And that, to me, I think worked incredibly well in terms of telling the story and just putting that right amount of cheese on top of it and really giving you that awesome experience without going overboard with the exposition. Yeah, totally. I, it's it's surprising how well they actually flesh out that Silas Greaves character over yeah. the course of that thing. And I, I love the way that like he will sit there and just yell back at whatever story is being told to him. It's like, yeah, that's not how it happened. Yeah. And the level will actually start to redraw certain aspects. That was fantastic. It's cool. Yeah, I remember the first Very time that stuff. happened where I believe it said something about being ambushed. And it's like, no, no, that didn't happen at all. And that just rewinds the whole thing and lets you do it again. Yep. It's like that is That is clever. That is done, executed really, really well. I, I imagine if the game were longer, that would really get very played out, but it is right. a, it's a shorter experience, it's a $15 experience, and I think within those boundaries, it works incredibly well. Totally. Yeah, it, 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 was, it, it definitely was one of those, uh, you know, that came out right along the same time as Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon, uh, which was, again, you know, and, yeah. you know, whether or not the humor clicked for you or not in Blood Dragon, you know, I, I know, Alex, you didn't, you didn't care for it as much. Uh, it definitely made me <clears throat> really excited that Ubisoft was... You know, putting out these sort of little downloadable, isolated experiences that if they fleshed them out, I don't think they would work, or at least they would become boring in a way that it would have fundamentally uh, made those games uh, flawed and, and unfun over like a 18-hour period. But as a downloadable sort of, you know, six-hour experience, you get to the end, you're like, you know what, I could go for more of this, but I, that's also a really good feeling that I got almost exactly what I wanted. Exactly. Yeah, I could go... 
I could go for more of this the next time they want to make one of these. I don't necessarily need more of this right now. I can take a little break. But yeah, I, I, I'm definitely in favor of these smallish downloadable experiences that feel like they have, you know, the attention and the mechanics and like the, the, the amount of effort paid that a lot of the bigger games get, but aren't are, are dedicated to these like singular, like, you know, five, six hour experiences that are just very tight and well managed. That's something that I could see, I'd love to see a lot more of next year. And I think it's the kind of thing that needs to be happening more as gamers get older and just get more and more busy with family life and real jobs and yep. things like that. Uh, it, it is amazing that I can sit down and play through a whole game in a few hours for maybe $10, $15, have a good time and not really feel like I need to play 18 more hours of it to really get my money's worth out of that. And Absolutely. my time is very limited, and if I want to play games for fun, then that format is just so perfect for me. So hopefully that happens a lot more. Absolutely. Uh, Patrick, what do well, you think? Well, I finished Zelda. I feel like I might have mentioned that on mm -hmm. a previous show. Uh, really enjoyed that. Um, I mean, last I didn't play a whole lot of games last week because I was, uh, I was in San Francisco uh, for the right. Game of the Year deliberations, and <laughs> simultaneously also the CBS holiday party, which did not plan, but I thought that was pretty funny that the one week I managed to go back is also when that was happening. Um, convenient. Yeah. Very uh, convenient. May or may not have something to do with the fact that we didn't have a, a show on Friday morning. I cannot confirm or deny such rumors or allegations. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, a lot of last week was, was instead – uh, you know, I flew all the way to San Francisco to box myself into a room, which you were, you know, you were, you were a part of. Which I was able to Skype into pretty easily, so I don't know, maybe make sure you don't have to necessarily fly all the way out. Ah, there's saying. something about being able to stab someone in the neck as you're removing their game from contention in something that uh, is not quite the same over, over the internet. Um, but yeah, so we, we finished all that stuff up, you know, can't really uh, talk too much about that because we're, we're saving all that for next week. Obviously, as, as Vinny and Drew start going through uh, the video portion of that, which I've seen some of that stuff, and it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's something. It's, it's traditional. Some, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's very strict. It's just like other websites like to present their content. Mm -hmm. uh, very professional. Good. Um, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to see, see how that, all that stuff turns out. But, yeah, it's also kind of weird to be in, it's still December, and be in a post-game of the year space right like it's all rolling out next week yeah but like my list is solidified it's already been recorded and taken care Mine of yeah. well yeah you you didn't have to do that because you weren't you weren't there to record your little video bit but uh yeah so you you can still play games and figure that out i i had to sol solidify my list uh last week I'm, like, that close now. I'm that close. Yeah. Um, John, do you do any Game of the Year stuff? Like, what, what do you do for the end of the yeah. year? I generally just do a top ten, which usually gets a decent amount of attention. It, I've had to sort of qualify it lately. The first, the first time I did it, I did just top ten games of 2000. It was either 10 or 11. And then there was a lot of disagreement from the community on that one and the comment section, as there always is. And I started qualifying it with my... <laughs> top 10 games right yeah you know, and just said look these are the games that i enjoyed playing so when someone comes along and tells me why isn't the last of us on your 2013 list i will tell them it's because i didn't enjoy playing it so as a result it's not on the list it's really as simple as that well that's that's why you know i've always i've actually been kind of surprised that no other website has really sort of just kind of copied what giant bomb does because you know by putting out these ridiculously long podcasts that are the exact deliberations that result in, you know, the top 10 list for the site, not the, the personal ones, but obviously people's personal feelings play into that. Uh, it at least provides, uh, if someone wants to, you know, if they look at a list and go, God damn it, why didn't they include that on there? You know, I mean, it's certainly possible that it just didn't come up, but more often than not, you know, that game was mentioned and then either dismissed or removed uh, for a specific reason. You know, whether it was political yeah. or part of a horse trade uh, to get another game on a list. You know, that stuff happens. But it's what I really like about what Giant Bomb does because you can go back and see the evidence of how we arrived at our stupid conclusions. Uh, and you may still disagree with us, but at least you know how we got there. Yeah, and I, think, I certainly think you've got to explain the positions as heavily as possible, and I've tried to do that with the, the top tens, but people do take that very, very seriously a lot of they the do, time. They, they so. take it very personally, and, you know, I, I, I consider that to be a compliment that someone gets upset that, you know, because I think ultimately what sometimes it comes down to is, you know, people view 
a lot of what we do as either uh, you know validating their own likes and dislikes and purchases uh, or gaining uh, giving recognition to a game that really they really like. So when someone gets upset that I didn't like a game that they did, you know, I almost just you know the fact that they care that much uh, to be upset at what my opinion is like that's that's a really cool thing in in a way as long as you can kind of look past some of the insane comments that you sometimes get in the same vein it's really the only way you can look at that without just wanting to drown yourself <laughs> it's it's the best way of handling it it's oh great well he cares so i i win in in that respect somebody went out of their way to watch me and then went out of the way to engage further with comments to try and disagree with what i said so evidently it didn't just go in one ear and out the other right so yeah i mean that's definitely the way to look at it but Top 10 lists and all that kind of stuff, people take extremely seriously alongside game scores. So you do have to be a little bit careful, but uh, I'll do the same thing I always do. Hey, these are the games I enjoyed playing. But it's funny that you should have mentioned that you kind of got it all on lockdown now, because I thought I had it on lockdown, and then I played two titles, which really messed with my list. Okay. And can you say what they are? Yeah, I can. Uh, one of them that I broke out, I actually plugged my Wii U back in. It was mm -hmm. covered in dust. The, the I had to clean off the gamepad and all sorts of things like that. Charge the gamepad up, and uh, at this point, I actually had I lost my internet connection for a day because Time Warner unilaterally decided I didn't need business internet anymore and cancelled the whole thing without warning anybody. So while I was getting that sorted out, I thought, hey, you know, what's the console that really works without an internet connection? Oh yeah, the Wii U. Let's plug <laughs> that back in, and I had the sealed copy of the wonderful 101. And decided to pop that in because I absolutely love almost everything Platinum's ever made. Plugged it in, got through the tutorial, which was highly confusing. And then suddenly that game kind of clicked with me. And I had an absolute whale of a time with it. And I thought to myself, you know, what an interesting and original way to present what is basically a spectacle fighter brawler. And, yeah. you know, what, what, how much character this game actually has and how enjoyable and colorful it really is. And the music in the background is just absurd. The notion that there's just this male choir singing about superheroes in this world that doesn't even exist. And this giant bus for no reason. And it's like, yep, this is a platinum game. And I think if I play a little bit more of that, that that's probably going to be a game that's certainly in contention. Yeah, I think I, I wish that game clicked for me. I tried multiple times to get it to click for me, and it just didn't. It's possible that if I pressed forward, you know, I, I could maybe get to the place that you were. It's just, you know, when you have to try and play all of the major games every single year, yeah. there are a few that you inevitably have to leave behind. And I think that's one that I've inevitably had to leave behind, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm pretty much anything on the Wii U has been that for me. Uh, I've dabbled in Monster Hunter a little bit, and then the only time it's ever got used is for my son to play Mario. It's really as simple as that. But I, I think with Platinum, I go out of my way to try and like it because everything they've made for me, and even, of course, the stuff they used to do as Clover has really been what some of my favorite games that ever I've ever seen. I really like the way they design games. I like their massive focus on mechanics. I like how they don't take the storyline too seriously and they go deliberately blasé with almost everything they do. And the fact that they made a Kami and God Hand to me is enough of a reason for me to kind of venerate them, I suppose. So, totally. yeah, Wonderful 101 definitely has some problems. I'll absolutely admit that. And it does a terrible job of explaining itself, but you know, I, I think maybe I just click with the platinum logic these days. So yeah, that, that's a game that I enjoyed an awful lot. And the other one, which just snuck in and devoured most of my Saturday, was actually Path of Exile. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't know. I've I've not actually had the chance to try that one out. At I've heard all. a lot of good things about it, and and people were definitely last week sending me a lot of messages of. Hey, we know you guys are going into Game of the Year deliberations. Like, someone needs to play Path of Exile. But I, I don't know too much about it. Can you can you break down what it is? Sure. So I did a, a quite a lot of coverage in their beta and alpha for this particular title. And it's an independently developed Diablo clone, essentially. And its aesthetic is very Diablo 2-esque. It's got this pseudo-realistic look to it. It's taken away a lot of the colors, a lot of the cartoony nature. And they very much said, look, this is kind of designed to be gritty. There's very little humor in this. You're an outcast that's been exiled to this place, which is just horrible. The dead come back to life. Everything's out to murder you. Not a nice place to live in general. So you're expected to survive about five minutes, go. And that's the storyline in a nutshell. And it's pretty grim. But as you go into it, you 
gain your power in a, a very unique way. With other games like Diablo, you'll level up and you'll gain abilities. Simple as that. Doesn't get any more complicated. Path of Exile has this gigantic skill system, which is... If you think of the sphere grid from Final Fantasy X and then you blow that up about five times <laughs> larger than that, okay. then you have this giant passive grid, which you can you can skill into almost anything. You can go in the same direction as, say, a class which is totally different to you. It'll take you a little longer to get there, but you can go that way. And those passives actually support what you're doing. And your skills actually come from drops, skill gems, huh. which you slot into items. And you can swap them around at will. But these skill gems also level up. But further on, you get support gems, which actually add a secondary effect or bonus to that. And you can link them together in a complicated chain. Some of these items have six sockets. So you can link this to this to this to this. So let's say I had a projectile. It's, let's, let's say I had flame arrow. I get a support gem called fork. Now my flame arrow splits off. It does a little bit less damage, but now it splits off. Then I link it to something which adds, say, an electricity effect uh, or bounce effect. And suddenly, you're kind of building your own skills, and you're using the skills that you find enjoyable at the time, and you're building a character around the idea that you could swap your skills out at any time and really customize them. And mechanically, that game is rock solid as a direct result. It's also quite daunting as a direct result. I'm looking at this because skill tree right now, and holy shit, you're right, this does look like just a sphere grid on acid. Huge sphere <laughs> grid, yeah. Oh my god, this thing is enormous. I don't even know, like... How much uh, sort of like uh, ability do you have to like sort of like start going down a path and then realize, oh no, this is I have chosen wrong, or do you need to kind of start a new character if if you go too that's, deep? That's the terrifying part of it. Yeah, they they went into oh, this geez. being they they wore it on their sleeve saying, look, we're aiming for the more hardcore audience here, and I think the the way Diablo three went down very much benefited them because they were able to differentiate themselves from a game that has a hell of a lot more budget behind it as opposed to just an indie team out of New Zealand making a free-to-play game. But the, in the process of doing that, they said, look, your character is your character. There are some abilities to respec, but you gain what are called respec points. You actually gain these currency items called orbs of regret, funnily enough, which allow you to remove a passive point. But they... They're quite costly. You, you don't pay for them with money or anything like that. The currency system in the game is actually based on this sort of item trading where there are currency items. A, a, a scroll of identify, for instance, is a currency item. You can buy stuff from vendors with them and then you can translate one into another and there's this kind of very complex economy system behind it. But respecking is difficult. So you're stuck with your character. And you're encouraged, of course, to roll up a new one if you mess that up. And some people are going to absolutely hate that, and I don't blame them at all because it's a gigantic waste of your time. <laughs> I, I think you know, it, it's something you've got to be a little bit careful of. Uh, initially, you can spec it to pretty much anything, but once you start getting your character up to higher levels, you must be really careful because you're dealing with endgame content. You need to be tougher. You need a certain amount of evasion and so on and so forth. I think an orb of regret is perhaps the video game item I would most like to apply to my real life. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that that I, that would definitely work. It sounds like a really I good would, idea. I, I could use that yeah. for a lot of things. <laughs> well, the folks have uh, questions oh. in the chat. Uh, feel free to shoot some our way uh, to myself, to Alex, to John. Uh, we'll address some of those as we start to uh, wind down the show. Um, trying to see. There's a bunch of small news, Alex, that has happened since we last talked. The PS4 was the top-selling console, but the Xbox One was the fastest-selling console. I hate, what? Uh, what? I hate what? I sales numbers. I, mm, yeah, it's a terrible yeah, word. X projected to win console war. Y projected to win console war. Well, this console was going to be going on for a while, so let's just, you know, suck it and yeah. see, shall yeah. we? Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely more curious uh, to see... Uh, I have not looked into it too much because I was, I was out uh, Friday evening hanging out with friends, but, you know, people started getting their Steam machines of the 300 folks that... Uh, we're selected to be part of a you know sort of a private beta that Valve is running. Yep. The, the machine itself is sort of whatever. Even the OS part is sort of whatever to me. Like I'm just I want to know how the hell this controller works and what how people are feeling about it. Because I watched that video and it seemed interesting. And I'm glad that they're just not making another twin stick uh, or dual stick uh, sort of analog uh, controller. I'm glad they're trying yep. something new. But you know, as with anything that radically new, you know, I just. It's hard to know anything about it till I'm going to have it in my hands. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to wonder. I've seen some more videos. Uh, there's been an awful lot of videos actually coming up of those who've got the Steam machine saying, hey, here's me playing Metro. Here's me playing TF2 using this controller. And 
TF2 is a really bad test case because some of those classes literally only do one thing. <laughs> so I, I don't know how good you are as, as an FPS player because you're holding down the button as a heavy or you're holding down the button as a medic. You could probably do that on a controller, yes, but I, I would love to see a precision shooter. Uh, uh, let's see something like Quake Live done on this thing. Right. Now, there's the real test as to how accurate sure. and how quick this thing actually is. But so far, it seems to be working pretty well for a lot of people. There's mixed opinions. Some people are digging it more than others. Some people are getting used to it quicker than others. But certainly for single-player games, it looks absolutely functional. But then again, a twin stick is also absolutely functional for those games. So does it give the mouse and keyboard-like experience? Yeah, you know, I, th I think for me, the, one, the games that I'm curious about are, are not whether it would make Half-Life you know, a better experience. Like I'm fine with a keyboard and mouse. I'm fine with a controller. Those are games that I don't feel are compromised in the way that I enjoy them on a computer monitor or when connected to my TV. But, you know, it's it's looking at some of those games like Civilization, you know, or Papers, Please. You know, games uh, that, you know, sitting up on a couch are just not going to be very comfortable, you know, even with like a lap board or some elaborate setup. And, you know, the video they showed that showed Civ 5 and showed Papers, Please and ways of manipulating, you know, and replicating a mouse environment, those are the ones that I want to know if they work. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean it'll replace how I primarily play those, but... If it is an option, you know, I think that's a more interesting potential solution uh, rather than making, you know, Half-Life a more playable game, which I think is just trying to, you know, solve a problem that isn't actually a problem right now. Yeah, and really that's the whole Steambox's issue. Outside of all of the hype, what problem exactly is the Steambox actually trying to solve? And is it going to be practical for anybody to really buy this kind of thing? Because the way that we had it explained to us was you know, through their marketing. Okay, this will let you stream games from your PC via this smaller box. But you can also get a box that's more powerful. So you don't need to stream the games. Right. And there's also a controller. And it uses a Linux-based operating system that you might want to use on your desktop. But now they've just come out and said, well, no, this is designed for use on your TV. So these performance benefits that they were explaining with SteamOS are evidently not in the first beta, which is to be expected. But Valve are also saying, look, this is an OS designed for your living room, not for your desktop. So I think it does leave a lot of existing PC users in a very confused space at this point. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, before we jump to questions, I just wanted to very briefly eulogize uh, another, stu another studio that went down this year, Terminal yeah. Reality. Oh, yes. Uh, which... We still have seen no actual official confirmation of them shutting down, but it sounds like everyone who actually works for them and everyone who is just, you know, was involved in that whole thing has basically just said publicly, yes, we have shut down. So it seems all but confirmed at this point. That is a studio that always seemed like they were on the cusp of doing something really, really good and then never quite did. Hey, I thought that Ghostbusters um, game was pretty kick-ass. I enjoyed it that It was game. pretty good. I didn't. I, I really wanted to, and I, I that was probably the game of, of theirs that I was the most excited for, but I, something about just the delivery and the actual mechanics of ghost busting did not do it for me, I, I'm sorry I to actually, say. So busting did not make you feel good, then? <laughs> it didn't! I know, and it's the one thing it's supposed to do! It had one job, make busting <laughs> feel good, and it did not do that, and I was pretty bummed out by that. But, I mean, it's like, you know, they had Blood Rain, which was reasonably successful for them over the years. Patrick, you obviously remember Blair Witch Volume 1, I Rusty do. Par, that was I'm made gonna by them. I'm going to try and, I'm going to try, you know, uh, it actually works out. I'm gonna, I was going to try and finish that game uh, live on the site this week, and I guess there is no better week uh, to do that than uh, with the uh, demise of Terminal Reality. But, you know, I, you know, a lot of people, Terminal Reality became a name once they heard of games like Blood Rain, but I was playing their games, like, when that studio started. Like, Terminal Velocity and Fury 3 were, like, some of the... Yeah, Hellbender. were some of the first games I played, like, on, you know, as Windows was starting to get its kind of, like, feet under itself in terms of trying to be a gaming platform. At that point, you were largely playing yep. things on DOS, and, you know, they they made Monster Truck Madness, which is a kick-ass game. Like, Monster Truck Madness yeah. is a really yeah. good game. I'm sure it doesn't hold up at all uh, in 2013, but at the time, Probably Monster not. Truck Madness was such a good game. Um, and they, you know, Fly and, like, some other weird stuff. Like, I'm looking at their Wikipedia page, and... They made a lot of really interesting games early on in their life, and, you know, Blood Rain ended up being sort of their breakout hit that just wasn't, you know, I think very good. It had an interesting character design, and at the time, you know, 
you know, having a, a sexy female character, like, is a good way to draw attention to your game. And I actually liked the mythology, you know, setting it sort of like vampires and Nazis. You know, that's something that's up my alley in terms of camp. Uh, but, you know, never just quite uh, clicked for them. And at some point, they became an outsourcing house. Um, you know, and, like, the last games they worked on were Survival Instinct and Connect Star Wars, which that's not, you know... Not a big surprise that it's an ignoble. <laughs> I end. guess. Yes. Yeah, I guess the. I'm not sure I can I mean, entirely forget that. Before that, they did Def Jam Rap Star, which wasn't that no. bad. You know, that was like surprisingly okay rap karaoke game that could have been way worse, considering how bad most rap karaoke games were. I'm just saying they had they had flashes of brilliance. It just didn't didn't come together in the end, which is which is unfortunate and sad. It's true. It's true, and it's you know it's always yeah. sad when people I, lose their jobs for sure. That's that's very true, and honestly, as much as people like to rail on them for Connect Star Wars, I'd like to see any other g company do that game better. It was a terrible <laughs> idea from the outset. Yeah. Uh, wh why did people expect it to be good? I cannot imagine. Uh, this is not waving a lightsaber in anyone's definition of the term, and it never would be. So yeah, they did the best they could, I guess. Uh, it did end up, of course, just I would say pissing on the grave of the franchise, but perhaps that's a little unfair. Regardless, it it. Ended up about that grave was pissed so <laughs> it really was I don't you think know it's their fault, there was really. there was the smell was pungent in the air from thirty yeah. feet away before that even happened so uh, yeah. in the world where the Star Wars holiday special exists I think that connect Star Wars is not perhaps the biggest crime that anyone could have committed against that franchise. Uh, Alex, people are wondering they want to know where your cat is. Uh, not in the room. Sorry. I know people have been, like, complaining this has been a catless year <laughs> on the show. We still have one more episode to do this year before we go on break, so maybe Friday we'll make that special cat day for everybody if, if people are really excited to see some I mean, cats on air. Guess I mean, what? I, my dog kind of looks like a cat. It's the size of a cat. I can, bring, I yeah. can, I can get Pixel. Yeah, cat pretty cat. much. Pretty much. Uh, John, do you own any animals that you would accidentally feature on your videos? <laughs> That, that get brought in deliberately to maul my face during podcasts is uh, <laughs> our Shiba Inu puppy is kind of averse to being picked up, but when she is picked up, she she sort of spreads her arms out like a bat, which is fairly entertaining for people, but we, we only just got an animal because we moved into a place that would allow it, so that, that's been an interesting experience up to this point. We're trying to stop the house from being eaten and chewed to pieces. That's fair. Yeah, you might as well just let it just just let go. As soon as you let go, it becomes okay. You're I, free. I, I think Stressing so. Stressing over it yeah. kills you. Uh, Xanadu in the chat, uh, John, he asked you if you've given up completely on Need for Speed Rivals, uh, or if you uh, have any oh. plans to go back to it. I know that that proved problematic. Uh. <laughs> I'm with you, John. That's I'm with you. that's one way to put it. Yes, I'm sorry. If you, if you lock your game to 30 FPS and then tie that frame rate to the actual physics engine of the game to the point where it becomes unplayable if you unlock it, that is a problem for me uh, as a PC gamer. I'm over 30 FPS. I've been over 30 FPS for a long time. I've actually struggled with things like Dead Rising 3 because of both kind of clunky controls and 30 frames per second is less than enjoyable for me. I have heard that some rather enterprising modders have managed to make that game playable at 60. I'm kind of tempted to go back to it, but there's a lot of that game where I feel like the game is insulting my intelligence on a fairly consistent basis, both through absolutely needless and redundant tutorial nonsense and dialogue that was written by a 10-year-old who just discovered Limp Bizkit. Yeah, that's, that's something we have talked about a lot uh, as well, is the, the dialogue, the cop racer dialogue in that game is when you start to think about it too much that the fact that it was written by an adult it actually like it kind of freaks you out a little bit you can't catch like, devils with what, angels this, patrick yeah is this what our generation has been raised to be capable of is writing dialogue like this like actually producing something like this for a major multi-million dollar corporation and then putting it out for people to pay 60 dollars for it is fucking insane the story of that game is fucking insane yeah. i don't know how that happened I agree. Ugh. I agree. You are asleep. I am awake. What can I say? <laughs> um, uh, John, some people asking, you know, what do you what do you think about the the Wii U in general as a result of being forced into an internet land, <laughs> internetless land, and then playing the wonderful 101? You know, what what do you make of that machine in general? And is it something that you'll only go back to if you somehow just don't have the internet? It's a dark time in my life, but I, I'm starting to really get the feel for that gamepad. I, I always thought that it had some potential. I really like the layout. It like, feels really nice yeah. to play games on that. 
Surprisingly so, because you think that this is big, but you know, I have big hands, so it works for me quite nicely. A lot of these newer gen things, especially the D-pads, are actually giving me hand cramp. But on Monster Hunter in particular, I'm noticing how useful this damn thing can be, because otherwise, controlling everything with a large inventory and swapping between weapons and doing everything properly in that game with just a controller can be a bit fiddly. With this giant touchscreen that manages all of this stuff for me and moves unnecessary UI elements away from the screen and away from being in my way, it's actually quite a good experience. And it's a technologically limited machine, but let's be honest, these next-gen consoles are also giving me 30 frames per second regardless, so maybe I'm getting less fidelity, but there are some interesting titles on there. The problem, I think, is that there's really no incentive to continue to develop them at this point, because nobody owns the bloody thing. It's a horrible catch-22. And Platinum absolutely loves to develop games for systems that maybe they don't get eyeballs on, and they somehow don't care and survive anyway, but it, it worries me that they would be the only people outside of Nintendo really taking it seriously. Yeah, I mean, Platinum's just a studio that, you know, you know, speaking of Terminal Reality, like, I mean, Platinum makes much better games than Terminal Reality, but, you know, Platinum's a studio yeah. that makes highly, highly acclaimed games that just don't seem to sell very well uh, or, or are assigned to publishers that are sort of inept in marketing them and getting it out, getting Indeed. the word out there on them. And so they're a studio that really shouldn't exist, uh, and yet uh, it's it's encouraging that companies continue to take a chance on them uh, and sort of fund their their batshit crazy projects. I, I mean, I highly recommend uh, John if you never played uh, Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. You know that's supposed to come yes, out on PC any day now, and and that game it is yep. that game is so fucking platinum in the best way possible. Like it is so stupid and so much fun, and I love the fact that. It's an action game that flips you on the defensive as opposed to being on the offensive all the time, which is how most of those games are, are built. And it's just, you know, as someone that gets tired of Metal Gear's bullshit, uh, that game embraces it and subverts it in some really, really fun ways. Yeah, I barely have any experience with Metal Gear games outside of Metal Gear Rising. And I bought that, I bought it solely on the promise that this is a platinum title. And uh, I looked at it and I thought, oh, look, this is running at 60 frames per second. It's an action game on the PS3 running at 60 FPS. Still looks great somehow. Don't know how they pulled that off. And is incredibly fun to play. And it's also one of those games where you actually just have to watch every cutscene to see how ludicrous it's going to end up being. And I cannot wait for that to come out on PC. I'm a little concerned because it's Platinum's first PC port. Right. And we saw how that went with Dark Souls. But uh, yeah. if the game's good enough, then enterprising modders will fix the damn thing. So I, I'm very much hoping that I don't have to go on air and say, look, I'm sorry, guys, this game's great, but the port is just terrible. On a scale of 10 to 1,000, speaking of PC things that are coming out recently, how excited are you for Just Cause 2 multiplayer? <laughs> oh, that I've, I've been looking at that. I found out initially about it because I kept getting tweets from people claiming that I was playing the beta at that point, which I actually was not. There's this one guy that keeps taking my name every time. I'm not sure what's happening there, but... I, He's a fan. Yeah, you know. yeah, absolutely. Not, uh, not creepy at all. You know, he may or may not have been going around calling people horrible names, but regardless, you know, I, I just feel that that's enthusiasm and passion coming from there. He's trying to help spread the brand. Yeah. The brand awareness. Yeah. You know, haters are very useful, apparently, in this modern new media world that we have, but... It, that is looking kind of great. <laughs> I've got to be. I've got to be honest there. Yeah. I, I wonder how long it will take for the novelty value of that to kind of wear off. Because you know, blowing each other up sounds hilarious, but I heard from a lot of people that that's kind of how GTA Online ended up being. It ended up being incredibly frustrating as a result because you got nothing done. But I, I don't know just how many activities they've really got in this outside of just killing other people. So we'll see. All right, well, the, the last thing I would leave us on is that, uh, John, someone in the chat mentions that you are as big a fan of Risk of Rain as potentially we might be. Is that true? That game is evil in the best possible <laughs> way. I, it really is. I, I, I love going back into that game and failing. Uh, it's a game that I just I look forward to seeing how far I can get before I absolutely fail once again. The only, I suppose, problem I've had with it really is that it takes a very long time to unlock different characters, yeah. and there's very specific ways to do that. So that was a little frustrating for me, considering how long I've put into it. But it's incredibly satisfying, and the soundtrack is probably in my top three of the year. 
Yeah, it's this the music. I, that's one of the few games I actually just went and ripped all the damn music out of the game so I could just kind of listen to it as background sound because yeah. it is so goddamn good. It is. And uh, funnily enough, he's not a well-known composer at all, really. And he did a phenomenal job with that soundtrack. It reminded me, you know, I heard bits of Alexander Brandon in there, uh, mm-hmm. definite influences from the Deus Ex and the Unreal soundtrack, but with his own unique spin on it, it is a phenomenal set of music. And it goes along to a great game, and his name is almost impossible to pronounce properly, so trying that might not be a very good idea. I think it's Chris Christodolo, or something along those lines. It's got a lot of use in it, enough. but there you go. Close enough. Okay. It works. Uh, so, Alex, what do, you, what do you got coming up on the site this week? Are you, are, are you like me, you know, working on private Game of the Year stuff? Yeah, I got to finish my personal top 10 list, uh, which I'm, I'm, again, very close on. There's a couple games I need to, to get a little more into to decide one way or the other. Um, I am uh, currently shepherding all the other guest top 10 lists uh, that will appear on the site throughout next week. Uh, no spoilers, no sp- nothing I'm going to say here other than to say I am very excited about some of the names <laughs> yeah, we yeah. have this year, and I will leave it yeah, at there was, that. There, yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. That's pretty much uh, it for me. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm working on all that stuff, too. Uh, helping you out with some of that, uh, corralling some people along to submit their their things as we get nearer uh, to the end of the week. Uh, but uh, uh, John, you know we have appreciated you having you come on the show today. We appreciate you giving uh, us my an absolute hour. pleasure. Um, you know, thank not, you very much. If people aren't aware of you somehow, like where where should they follow you after this? Like where can they check out your stuff? You can check out my main channel at youtube.com slash cynicalbrit. That's where all the general gaming stuff goes. If you're looking for StarCraft 2 Esports, that's youtube.com slash totalbiscuit. And I can be followed on Twitter at twitter.com slash totalbiscuit. Although I do have a less spammy feed for those who don't really enjoy my rantings and just want to know when my videos go up, which is twitter.com slash cynicalbrit. Very cool. Well, John, we'll have to have you on again sometime. Uh, Alex, I will uh, absolutely love to. talk to you again on Friday as we wrap up uh, yes. 2013. Um, and, uh, yeah. Thanks again, John. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute blast.